Welcome to the 184th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Projects podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. When you think of Mexican farming communities, what comes to mind? Well, rural Mexican states like Oaxaca have more in common with their counterparts in the Midwest than you might think. That's what a group of 20 Land Stewardship Project members discovered recently during a trip to the state, which is in the southern part of the country. The 10-day trip, a joint effort of LSP and Witness for Peace, focused on a part of Mexico that's been devastated since the North American Free Trade Agreement, also known as NAFTA, went into effect in 1994. Recent constitutional reforms in Mexico have also harmed rural economies in the country. As a result of these and other changes, small farmers' holdings are targeted for purchase for industrial use or tourist development, support for small farms is almost non-existent, communal lands are up for sale, and mega-projects have proliferated, polluting the land and offshoring the profits. That's not to mention the fact that NAFTA has flooded the local markets with cheap corn, deeply impacting farmers who are raising a food grain that's an integral part of not just the economy, but the cultural life as well. The end result has been a mass exodus of residents from Oaxaca and other parts of Mexico as they head to the U.S. in desperate search of jobs. But as the LSP delegation witnessed firsthand, indigenous rural residents in Oaxaca are utilizing their connection to the land, food, and community to take back control of their own futures. The group saw how farmers and other rural residents are combining sustainable farming systems and innovative economic development endeavors with activism to resist the onslaught of bad government policy and transnational corporations. In the end, the Midwesterners took home with them a realization that many of the challenges faced by farmers and rural communities in places like Minnesota aren't that much different from what our neighbors to the south are grappling with. I recently had a chance to talk with a few of the participants in the LSP Witness for Peace trip. They shared their insights from an experience that was truly life-changing. For example, Andrew Ehrman, a farmer from Northfield in southeastern Minnesota, told me how some people in Oaxaca were using their version of the local food movement to resist the corporate takeover of the land. Yeah, what was really interesting about the trip was the strength of local food systems that we saw in these communities. And um, yeah, they were so strong and were such an inspiration for me as a local farmer who's trying to rebuild local food here in the Midwest. A lot of that came through and just the seamless seamlessness of their culture from their farming through their food to their land ethics and that culture gave them such strength to resist these corporate interests and government that are um, trying they're trying to take away their land or bring in seed that they don't believe in and it was really inspiring because at the same time where this was an eroded, an eroding food system because of big food and big ag, and the same big food and big ag that we're up against here in the States, it was just a lot less eroded in my mind. So that's where the inspiration lay because you could still see the beauty and the strength in the indigenous cultures of that place and really feel the strength that came out of them. That's really interesting. That's interesting that you say that it was less eroded. You really did see that. Uh, that. Can you think of one example that you saw that really struck you? 
Sure. Well, it's there are GMO seeds in Oaxaca, but they still have a ban in Oaxaca against GMO seeds. So those seeds that are there, they're against the law. It's just that no one's enforcing it, so they're still there. But and they're actively fighting and opposing legislation to allow GMO seeds and and just educating farmers that are adopting them about what they're doing and really working strong to preserve their local seeds because they know that their seeds and their food are their culture. It's that seamless connection between the land and the people. There's a saying that we heard that's a part of a the movement down there that's uh, sin maiz, no hay país. So without corn, there's no place. Hannah Breckbell, who farms in Decorah in northeastern Iowa, was impressed with how some farmers blended food production with activism. Um, in terms of farming and activism, what I noticed um, in in at Espacio Cruz on the first day was that they they farmed as as part of what they part of who they were the kind of an expression of their culture um, but their their like purpose in the world in their community was really very focused on um, on this resistance of, of corporate um, multinationals coming and taking land um, and a couple things that struck me about that was um, they from this perspective of being indigenous people um, connected with their land for from time immemorial you might say was that the 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 corporate land grabbing is a noticeable thing whereas here um, there are corporations that own land all the time and so um, so we don't even notice it um, so it seems like the folks down there are are able to see and and like acknowledge as colonialism what colonialism is whereas here we don't recognize that we're being colonized I thought that was that was really powerful and uh, yeah I, I definitely kind of want to bring back into my farm into my livelihood the way of of kind of recognizing and calling out the things that are are calling causing problems um, for me and people like me uh, on a different topic it sounds like you also were fascinated by some of the I guess sustainable practices they were using or some of the uh, actual more indigenous systems that were kind of, it sounds like a combination of the way they used to do it, but also maybe some new ideas. Yeah, so they planted um, corn, beans, and squash all together in a, what they called a milpa. Uh, it was just a really beautiful system that they would wax poetic about, about how the corn and the beans and the squash all worked together and had their own roles in that system and in the cuisine. And also how, how other things that came up in the field, like tomatillos from before or chilies from before or... Um, 
or just wild greens and herbs, which they called quelites. We call them weeds most of the time here. Um, things like purslane and lamb's quarters um, that we noticed and other ones that I didn't recognize. Um, but those are all important parts of the cuisine as well and um, and well-loved parts of the cuisine. And those are lost when you, as soon as you do um, kind of industrial monocropping and use herbicides and all, all that stuff. So people were recognizing that um, and, and holding on to their traditional systems because how else are they going to get the calites if they, if they switch to monocropping? So that was, a, that was an exciting thing for me to see. And now I'm thinking about harvesting more of my lamb's quarters. <laughs> Deborah Niebar of Winona, Minnesota, said a visit to a migrant sanctuary for people fleeing crime and corruption put the issue of immigration in a whole new light for her. I think that there's like some sort of myth in the United States where people think, oh, you know, those Mexicans are just coming here to get a piece of the American pie and they just want a middle class life. And, and I think what's misunderstood is that they are impoverished people and actually um, all of the land in the state of Oaxaca, 80% of the land in the state of Oaxaca was owned communally forever and ever and ever. That's what they fought the uh, Mexican Revolution for. And it was when NAFTA came into being that the Mexican government changed that law and said now people could sell off their land. And that's a direct result of NAFTA. And with the multinationals being able to sell their products so much cheaper than the um, Mexican farmers can grow them and sell them for, they've been forced off their land. And they're farmers, that's how they make a living, and now they're forced off their land, so they do not have a way to feed their families. And so the uh, migrant people that we talked to just talked about, I just want to work. My children are starving. I just want to be able to feed my family. You know, I have to leave my community and my home in order to feed my family. That's what I need to do. And that, that was really... Not so much of a wake-up call, because I knew it, but just to see a human face on it, like you said, and see the desperation that these people face in their daily lives. So it's not like they want to leave their family and their communities, but they have to because they don't have a way to support their families. And I, get, I gather that a lot of these, were, they were coming from uh, deeper into Central America, from they're coming up through Mexico. They, the, they, these, they were coming from a lot of other countries that we probably don't even think about. Yeah, the, um, there's a lot of migration right now from um, El Salvador, uh, Honduras, and Guatemala, and they say they face the same um, issues as farmers, as rural people, and then they also face the issues of a lot of gang violence and drug cartel violence that's forcing them as well to leave, and a lot of, of the younger people, the teenagers that we see coming on their own, it's because they've been either forced to leave a, to join a gang or to leave their place. Carissa Koska, who works in marketing for People's Food Co-op in La Crosse, Wisconsin, in Rochester, Minnesota, was struck by how committed many people were to finding solutions from within their own communities. This is a great lesson to keep in mind no matter where you live, she says. So the organization that we spent a little time learning from um, was called the Centro de Apoyo al 
Movimiento Popular um, Oaxaqueño, which essentially is support center for the Oaxacan popular movement. So this is a direct quote from our interview with some of the good folks at Campo. Um, One of the lessons we learned as a nonprofit organization that came from the outside and went inside was if you produce honey in order to sell it, this was a big lesson for us, um, we started to understand that indigenous communities used to make honey for their health, for ceremonies, to sweeten food. One of the first successful programs we had were the bees. When we were about to harvest the honey, we went to the communities to see how we were going to do it in terms of collections and selling, etc. But then there was no honey in the end. The question was, what did they do with all of the honey? All of the families in the community had honey now. Where did they sell it? Within the community. So we thought, why are we thinking about exporting it? The money comes from the money that comes from selling it will be used to buy products that probably aren't healthy or were produced somewhere else. But the most curious fact was one liter of honey was going to be sold for exporting for 35 American Mexican pesos. Cost of transportation, bottling paperwork for exporting um, to the port in Veracruz. Um, the producer was going to be making 20% less. The question that we asked the farmers, what price did they sell their liter of honey? Um, locally, it was 70 or 80 pesos. It's better for the economy. The diet was strengthened by the local people. So the lesson we learned was to reevaluate the local markets and not think that only the external market could resolve the problem of reviving local production, not just monoculture, coffee, corn, beans, honey. It already existed in our communities, but we had forgotten it. Um, the lesson presented itself that the solutions really had to come at the local level um, and with respect to systems that are already in place within those communities. So that's something that um, I definitely think we all took away from the trip and are hoping to to take from our communities too. We know the problems that we face, whether it be in farming or community organizing, and um, we're the best ones to make changes. Sarah Freed, along with her husband Paul, also participated in the trip. They operate a Catholic worker farm in Lake City, Minnesota. She was very interested in the communal aspect of agriculture in some of the areas they visited, and how that fits in with the overall goal of fighting for social justice while producing food. So, uh, without going into the history of the Catholic worker, (laughs) um, our farm, um, yes, uh, we have a Catholic worker farm, and that means for us that we live in community, we farm in community, um, we are socially justice-oriented, trying to be just in all that we do also, so raising our animals humanely and just just practices um, with the land and the soil. it was great. This trip, when it came up, it was great because it was, as farmers, um, we're often not necessarily isolated, but, you know, we're out there, um, rural and all that. And so it was really great to be able to do all of this social justice action, like you said, through the lens of agriculture, um, because it was all dealing with farms and, and some of it was dealing with agriculture and farms and land rights. And, and so it was really interesting to see, uh, to visit different places that um, uh, 
um, for me personally, I was really caught with the, or struck with the, um, the communal aspect of a lot of places that we visited, the small businesses, the small family businesses, the small farms. So we went to a couple different places that were doing, um, activism, uh, whether it dealt with land rights or with, um, migration or any kind of agriculture with like bigger egg um, and not having a voice in what was happening. Um, but it was really interesting to see the common thread of small groups of people doing that and small families even um, or small communities. We're just as a community farm we're trying to to be just and, and to be a just business and be um, a just community and um, it was it was really affirming and um, exciting to see that happening in Mexico, in rural Oaxaca, Mexico. And so we really were affirmed in that and were energized by that. And it's really interesting to see the connections between rural Minnesota or Midwest um, and rural Mexico um, and see that we are dealing with a lot of the same issues, whether they are um, visible in the same way or in a little bit of a different way or how that, that effect comes up and shows its head. But it was, uh, we're, we're dealing with the same issues. Sue Nielsen is a chef at St. Olaf College in Northfield, and so naturally she was fascinated by the food culture in Oaxaca. It turns out food connected people to each other and their communities much more than she could have imagined. And I think the thing that I'm going to take away, what I've taken away from uh, going to Oaxaca is uh, the, the local food um, that they got to do every day compared to, I mean, they didn't have a cub or a rainbow or, or even a co-op to buy their food. They went to the market every single morning and purchased their food for their day. That's sustainable. And I would love to get back to eating like that every single day. Uh, builds community. And I think that's what's missing. I think one of the other thing you mentioned was you were a little surprised at how, and it maybe isn't a surprise if you think about other things that people do, but how food focused the trip was, that you guys had a lot of your conversations about other issues, some big issues, some small issues around the dinner table, around meals, that that, that and that, that sounds like that was turned out to be a really key part of it. It was. I think it uh, helped build community uh, within our own group. I know that uh, one of the nights I suggested that uh, we buy a loaf of bread and we broke bread together as a group and just told, as we picked a piece of our, the bread off of the loaf, um, just what we were grateful for. It was really heartfelt, and I think everybody enjoyed that. And But that's what I think food is about. It draws us in uh, as a community. And uh, you get past uh, what's the weather like, or you, know, you really get at the heart of the matter. <laughs> what I was impressed about there was um, how very valuable but sacred that land was mm. to them and um, how they grew their crops, how they ate their food, and how they worshiped the land. Um, I just feel like we have to get back to that, of what the soil is all about. Finally, Mary Dora, who farms in Kenyon in southeastern Minnesota, told me the story of a weaver's co-op that has turned out to be much more than a place to add value to some local wool production. 
Vidanueva is the name of the Weavers Co-op. It uh, means new life. And it was started uh, in 1996 by a group of four <coughs> women, um, two of who have since passed. Um, and then more women have joined. Um, and I think what's interesting about this, it, it, it was begun because they saw a need of empowering the women in the community that were um, somewhat going invisible uh, if they were not connected to a husband or um, if they were a single woman, if they were um, a, 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 a widow or just an elderly woman. How could they give back to their community? And they wanted to learn the art of weaving, which is traditionally, in Mexico at least, a, a men's craft. So it was met with some great hesitation when they first presented the idea. And those um, women really persisted with uh, trying to first start on a very small level with raising chickens um, and, and harvesting the eggs and then selling whatever was extra on, on the market. They were trying very hard to uh, increase the interest in the, in the local markets so that, um, that that would allow them to bring in some money for their own family. And then the weaving was all, you know, very much from an organic level of, of accessing the, the, uh, uh, the animals. I mean, most of it was probably sheep and uh, dyeing their own colors and so forth. And I guess the other piece of that was that they felt really strongly that they wanted a bigger input into their own community that um, so they would take on projects that um, gave back to the community and some of those were reforestation projects that they did. Each year they would choose to do one and the, another year they um, basically recycled uh, uh, some cans that they were able to then post on uh, telephone poles and they had a little sticker on them talking about how important it was to recycle and um, both of those projects have had really really good ripple effects in the community the market has grown in the 20 years that that this so the weaving co-op was not really an island it was more about um, empowering people that didn't feel empowered and as they got stronger and as their community built there was a really good ripple effect into the greater community and we just were um, very impressed and humbled by that um, energy that went out. The husbands who had been suspicious earlier were kind of buying into it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There were a couple of funny stories that uh, Patrona was one of the women that that started it, and 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 I think her sister was interested, and but her sister's husband was not supportive of that. And then she said, "Well, come to some of the meetings," because he thought you know it was all maybe male bashing or something going on. <laughs> and, and said that too. Yeah. And uh, you know, and then he went to a few meetings and. And he finally sort of said, well, this seems like a good thing, you know. And so, and as he, you know, sort of gave his affirmation to what his wife was doing, that influenced other men in the community as well. And so it, it really is more about bringing everybody together. And it really 
is. The, when we all do better, we all do better. Yeah. And it's it just seemed like that was a living example of that. It was beautiful. For more on the land stewardship project's work related to international trade and corporate power in agriculture, see www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.